The title this morning is Guidelines for a Godly Mother. And we'll get back to that eventually. And, uh, you know, as a guy, you're kind of like, what do you know about this, right? Well, you know, we can learn, first of all, from the Word of God. The Word of God is really the best teacher for all of us. We're going to be talking, I'm going to be focusing a little bit, obviously, on the mother's aspect of it, the lady's aspect of it. But I just want to encourage all of us. You know, a few weeks ago, I gave a message, I think it was titled something like, Are You Anchored or Adrift? Really stressing how in our culture and with all the things that are taking place, that we need to be anchored to the Word of God, anchored to Jesus Christ. We, we need a solid rock because everything around us is like shifting sand. It truly is. And then last week, Casey shared a message from her heart on, on our dedication Sunday about, about our kids and, got, and very practical. And what I want to be today is also very practical. But it's not just for the ladies, even though that will be part of the emphasis. It's, it's for all of us. It's for all the men. It's for all the grandmas and grandpas. It's for all of us that have any impact with kids. And that's usually all of us. So we're going to be sharing and looking at, a, at some things in the Scripture first, a story, a little bit of a story. But I want to challenge us and get us thinking about how do we raise godly children in an ungodly culture? You know, you know, it used to be they called America, we're this Christian nation. Well, they can still call us that, but our culture is not very Christian anymore. There's small aspects of it, thank God, that there are areas where God is moving mightily. Churches are standing strong. The Word of God is being preached. People coming together as a family on a Sunday morning and during the week and, and really just pressing into the things of the Lord and just wanting to know Him better, and, and that's taking place. But in a culture overall, we are fighting a spiritual battle. And that's the first thing we need to always remember. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. We get into an awful lot of silly fights with flesh and blood. We, we need to realize we are fighting a spiritual battle and a powerful weapon, the Word of God and prayer. We need to stay focused on what the enemy really is. But how do we do this in a culture? You know, looking around, and, and I know this includes so many different family dynamics, you know, raising kids. So many people are, are raising children in homes where they're unequally yoked. I'm not judging yoked or unequally yoked, but I'm saying we've got a Christian parent and a non-Christian parent. It's tough to be in agreement on all things if that's the case. It's a challenge. If you're one of those, you know it can be a challenge. We can be married to a great person, but we don't have the same spiritual DNA going on in our lives. In our culture today, tons, many, many, many people are raising kids alone. Single family units, single parent units. So often it's obviously the mother. What a job. What a task. How do we, with all the things going on around us, how do we raise God-honoring kids? Can we raise God-fearing, God-loving, God-serving children in environments like this? Well, I hope we'll see that the answer is certainly yes, it can be done by the grace of God. But there are some very practical things that we'll be looking at in a few moments. But first, I want to start with us in Acts chapter 14. Um, this probably I don't think is on the slide. That's okay. In Acts chapter 14, it's kind of a, a Paul and Barnabas are in their first missionary journey. So Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, the church as we know it is beginning to go, and he is being sent out from Antioch on this first missionary journey. And as he goes, it doesn't always go so well. One of the biggest problems then, just like it could be and is probably going to be today, was religion. 
he would go into these cities and, and it would say things like, he shared the message of Jesus. He, he went through all the history and so many of the Jews believed, but many of the Jews didn't believe. And of course, usually it was religious leaders, but it wasn't just the Jewish religious leaders. There was so much idol worship, so many false gods wherever they went also. In Acts chapter 14, I'm just going to read a couple verses scattered through it. But in verse 1, it says, And it came about when they, Paul and Barnabas, were in Iconium, that they entered the synagogue of the Jews together. And they spoke in such a manner that the great multitude believed, both of the Jews and of the Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. So there's this mixture going on. This is new exposure in these communities, these little little cities, these little towns where Paul and Barnabas are going. And, and the, the response is very, very mixed. And then they stir them up. Even though it says even there's signs and wonders taking place, and yet there was great division. They, they divided them. And it says they went on to a city called Lystra, L-Y-S-T-R-A. And Paul's preaching, and he sees a man, and it's interesting how it says that he sees a guy sitting there, and he looks at him, and he's been crippled since birth. But even in looking at him, the Holy Spirit spoke to him and showed him that this man has the faith to be healed. What a great way to open your sermon. So he tells this man, get up and walk. And he did. And, of course, he's in this town where there's a big temple to Zeus and and Hermes. They've got all these temple priests to Zeus. So right away, all these priests see this miracle, and what can they do but say, the gods have came and visited us. And they came to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas as Zeus and Hermes who came because part of their belief system was occasionally they would come. And uh, Hermes, in this case, Paul was the one who usually did the speaking, even though Zeus was like the father of all the gods. And they're coming, they're going to sacrifice to them. And of course, Paul and Barnabas have not, want nothing to do with this. And of course, they reject this. Don't do this. We're just men. And they go on and share more of the gospel message. And all of this is shared to them. And it gets, says in verse 19, they heard about this. And here came a bunch of Jews from Antioch and Iconium, the nearby towns. And having won over the multitudes, they stoned Paul and drug him outside the city because they thought he was dead. So here it is, the city of Lystra. And in this city of Lystra, there's an amazing family. And we're going to see a little bit about this family. But their first exposure to the gospel message was a preacher named Paul who came, and they ultimately end up stoning him and thinking he's dead and throwing him outside the city. It's an evil city. All of the idolatry, all of the idol worship. And then we read in chapter 16. It's now the second missionary journey, so an extended period of time has passed. And it did say in, when he was there the first time, there were many people that believed and many who didn't. And apparently this one family believed, for sure. And it says this in chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Paul came also to Derby, and then he comes back to Lystra. And this disciple was there, and his name was Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. In other words, making clear to us 
This is an unequally yoked household. He was well, well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Whoever this young man was that we're being introduced to, Timothy, he had become a believer, and he was well respected even in his hometown. And it said Paul wanted this man to go with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts. For all they, they all knew that his father was Greek. So here's this young man growing up in this environment in this pagan city. His dad wasn't a Christian. He probably didn't believe in God at all. If he did, it was probably in Zeus. His son, in this case Timothy, would have probably been able to be exposed and mingled with all of the people of the city, the philosophies of the city. All of this would have been part of his lifestyle because of his father and his father being obviously well-known. They all knew he was Greek. Yet somehow or other, he becomes a minister of the gospel. Somehow or other, he gains the respect of all the Christians in the community, all the believers in the community and in the neighboring town, it tells us. God calls him to be an evangelist. Paul calls him and refers to him over and over in Scripture as a brother, as a companion, as a comforter to him. Paul makes him, a, a, a Timothy, an ambassador. He sends him to the church in Corinth when it's getting goofy and bad doctrine and craziness is going on. He chooses Timothy. When the church in Thessalonica is being persecuted, he chooses Timothy and sends Timothy to encourage and strengthen the church. And eventually we see that he goes to Ephesus and becomes the pastor of the church in Ephesus another unbelievably pagan metropolitan area of the day. Temple to Diana or Artemis. Temple worship, temple prostitutes. It was like a, it was like the New York City of the day. It was a metro area and he ends up being, how did this happen? How could somebody who grew up in a, in this home, unequally yoked, in this city where there was a huge temple to Zeus and Hermes and and ungodly worship. His father probably didn't believe as a believer as we would think of it, whether it would be Jew, obviously, or as a Christian. How did this come about? What makes it possible? What was it prepared him to honor God in such a way? What, what was it prepared him to be able to do the work for the kingdom of God? What trained him? What prepared him? What was it that guided him and helped him when all of this confusion could be around him, living in this kind of culture? You know, how, how can our kids grow up to be like a Timothy in the culture we live in? How can they grow up when there's such greed, materialism, selfishness, sexual immorality everywhere, evils abounding, as the Scripture says, What's supposed to be good is now called evil. What's evil over here is now okay. It's good. It's encouraged. Philosophies of man are being expanded upon and taught to our kids at almost every level of education. All of these things are taking place. The culture Timothy grew up in wasn't a whole lot different than the culture we're seeing. How could he survive and thrive? And how can our kids it's the same thing that protected and helped Timothy when he grew up in a world like ours. Love and guidance of a godly mother. 
grandmother. The title is Guidelines for Godly Mothers. I'm going to look at about six, I think six, maybe it was seven, attributes, characteristics. Very practical, like Casey talked about last week. We need God's hand of wisdom. We need the Word of God. We need grace to raise up our kids, our grandkids, your kids. As you stand up here and dedicate kids like we did last week, you know, we're asking the congregation, are you committed to help? We need to know what we're doing, what the Lord would have us to do. The last thing we can ever do is throw in the towel on a generation of children. God's heritage. So that 2 Timothy chapter 1, this is kind of the text I'm going to work off of primarily. Starting in verse 1, I'm going to read, I think, five verses here. Paul is reminiscing now. As I said earlier, I read from Acts 14, his first missionary journey, then his second missionary journey. Now his third missionary journey's passed. He's arrested. He's writing this letter from prison. And he's reminiscing about Timothy. And he says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as my forefathers did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers, recalling your tears. He understood what Timothy had went through. and He's speaking like one proud spiritual father. And he says, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I have been reminded. This is where I want us to really lock in. I have been reminded of your sincere faith in which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. And I am persuaded that now lives in you also. The impact of a godly mother is almost immeasurable. Impact of a parent, but of a godly mother. It can impact things for eternity. I don't think when Lois and Eunice were raising up Timothy, they thought we'd be reading letters about him in the Scriptures 2,000 years later. They were just doing what they knew to do, to honor God. And the impact that he's had through his ministry and his life because of a mother and a grandmother. Even when they're raised in a really hard environment, in a difficult situation. If you're going to make a difference for good in your kids' lives, there are certain things that we need to understand from the Scriptures as it gives us direction. There's going to be probably more slides up there than you want, but... Hopefully it will help in case you want to take some notes. The first thing I want us to mention is the sincere faith. Paul is saying to Timothy, man, I remember your sincere faith that first lived in your grandmother and in your mother, and now it's in you. Sincere faith. That word sincere in the Greek has meant real, unfeigned, nothing fake about it. It is genuine faith. He says that's... Like the first key, is it genuine? Are you a person 
where it's what you see is what you get. What you proclaim on Sunday, what you demonstrate to the world out there around you, is that the same person they see when they're in your house? Are we living a sincere faith? Are we demonstrating a sincere faith to our kids, our grandkids, the neighbor kids who come over? Are we demonstrating? Are we truly li- Or is it something phony? We fake it. We live one way on Sunday morning here at church. We, we talk and act a certain way in the public. But when we're at the house, uh, not so good. It's not real. You know, in Philippians 4, verse 9, Paul's writing these words to encourage, not apparent necessarily, but he says, Whatever you have heard or learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. We've all heard the phrase. Practice what you preach. Our kids copy what they see way more than they do what we tell them to do. Anybody notice that? How many of us as parents or grandparents would say that, you know, a relationship with Jesus is important for my children? Well, you have to look in the mirror. Say, if it's supposed to be important for my children, is it important to me? Do I live a life? demonstrating Christ to my kids. And it's so easy to lose that focus. Amen? The culture we're in, the world we're in, the busyness of the day, I get it. We all do. But if it's important, if that's what I want for my kids, and it's amazing to me, and I know many of us have said it, including me at one time in our lives, we hear other people say it, well, I think we're going to start going to church because I think my kids really need something. Part of me wants to slap my forehead and go, your kids need something? What they need is you to demonstrate what they need. But I get it. But we need to refocus. Even more as the days get closer and closer to what we're seeing as the end. If it's a priority or supposed to be a priority in our kids' life, it needs to be in ours. Sincere faith. Number two, be an encourager. You know, man, one of the greatest blessings in my life is my mother and my wife. Man, my wife. <laughs> my son's back there going, amen. <laughs> Man, she bails me out for the last 40 years. <laughs> amen. <laughs> Some of us, for whatever reason, grow up with a little bit of a critical spirit, a little bit of a critical tongue, and nothing's ever quite good enough. My poor kids had to endure a whole lot of that. But thank God they had a mother who could encourage and lift up. You know, you almost missed it when you read the Scripture, but there's kind of a, I'll call it a secret message in the name of Timothy. Who would probably name Timothy? Well, you'd normally think, gee, probably Dad. Probably not Dad here. Because the name Timothy in the Hebrew means one who honors God or is honored by God. Guess what? That name probably didn't come from Dad, the Greek, who was a non-believer. It probably came from his mom. Here she is, even with her, her, the name that she gives this child in this evil culture, is a name to encourage him, a name to press him on to do wonderful things for the Lord. An encourager. There's a scripture that we read in Ecclesiastes 4. A lot of times at weddings, I've used this many times. It says, two are better than one 
because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend, another, maybe a parent, can help him up. But pity the man who falls and no one is there to help him up. We need to be the other as parents and grandparents, brothers and sisters in Christ. Our kids are not being built up in many places. It's tough amongst peers. It's difficult. Even in things that are good things that they get involved with, whether it's athletics or drama or speech or whatever, so much negative can be spoken over our kids. Believe it or not, all our kids aren't going to be superstars. They hear those negative things. We need to be these kids' greatest cheerleaders. Moms are so much better. My wife was so much better than her husband. Super encouragers, building them up. I'm sure most of us have read little poems or vignettes of some sort where it talks about words that build up or words that tear down. I always tell married couples, there is no greater potential to bring out the very best in your spouse or the very worst. And it's true about our kids. God has given us these children to raise up, train up in the nurture of the Lord. And nobody has more power and influence on their lives than we do. And the words that we speak make all the difference in the world. We need to be their cheerleaders. We need sincere faith. We need to be encouragers. The third one, all of these bring some balance, by the way. The third one is discipline. Discipline. First of all, we need to understand discipline is a demonstration of love when done correctly. The Bible is clear. God disciplines those whom he loves. We need to discipline those whom we love. But discipline too often becomes punishment. It does not become something to restore or to train becomes something that's just mean-hearted. And I don't think most of us as parents intend that by any means. But how it's done, if we are not very careful, becomes a punishment. God disciplines his children. God disciplines his church. He has throughout history to bring them back to relationship. So we need to discipline our kids. Proverbs 29.15 says, The rod of correction imparts wisdom. But a child left to himself disgraces his mother. Verse 17 says, Discipline your son and he will give you peace. He will bring delight to your soul. You need to understand, no matter what Dr. Spock wrote back in my generation or what other books have been written since, kids need discipline. They need correction. They may not quite understand it, but they desire it. Parameters bring security to a young child's soul. Without that, it can be very confusing. It can even be very frightening because our kids don't know what to expect in those years when they're being so formed. Discipline is an act of love when done properly. In Colossians 3.21, it says this, to bring some balance. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. In other words, don't stir them up and don't provoke them so that they will not lose heart. 
It's easy to do. Probably guilty many times. Don't provoke them. Teach them. Help them to understand consequences of wrong behaviors. This and this and this will bring this, but this will bring this. And it's not to punish you so that you might learn to protect you because I love you. Proverbs 6, verse 20, My son, observe the commandments of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Clear, it's a two-person job. It's not always possible, which makes it even that much more challenging for those single parents. But it takes two. It takes more than two to teach our kids, discipline our children. Sincerity, encouragement, discipline. I always have a tendency to want to say something like, and this is the most important one. That they're all important. But this is a biggie. Unconditional love. Unconditional love. So many of us grow up into adulthood and we have a hard time ourselves believing this simple truth that God loves me unconditionally. I have been so trained in my mind from this age on up that love is somehow attached to performance. What I do, what I don't do, And it's such a lie. If our kids do not learn unconditional love in the home, where are they going to learn it? Unconditional love. I'm going to read in Romans scripture you're very familiar with, but I hope it really imprints this truth in our hearts even in greater ways. Romans 8.35 Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship? Persecution or famine? Nakedness, danger, or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How am I more than a conqueror? Because he loves us. How can our kids be more than conquerors in difficult situations, knowing they're unconditionally loved? For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, Neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Man, a lot of us, that's hard to believe. Because I'm just not good enough to deserve that. I've messed up so much. Nobody could love me like that. That's just exactly what the enemy wants us to think. That's how much God loves us. Because that love is in us, we have the ability to love like that. As I said at first, where are they going to learn it if they don't see it modeled at home? Where are they going to learn? Where are they going to learn to trust God if they can't trust me or my wife? Children can't trust me. They don't see consistency. They don't see these attributes. And I want to encourage us You know, there's whole industries out there where people get together to hug one another. How silly is that? We're going to get together. What are we going to do? Oh, we're just going to hug. We're going to touch. I mean, research it. They're out there. People are making money. They're doing this. We're going to have a hugging seminar. How tough is that? How many of us grew up in homes where we were never hugged? 
at least by one parent, never touched us. Oh, how often common this is. I grew up that way. That's why I'm such a hugger now. It drives some of you crazy. But there is something about physical touch. Obviously, I don't need to get into the appropriateness of physical touch, but I want to encourage you, hug your kids. Hug your grandkids. Just because they get a little old and don't think it's cool, don't stop. They need to know that we love them no matter what. We discipline them, yes. We want to point out the things they do that are not proper behavior, yes. But we never, never, never want them to attach their, our love for them to what they do or don't do. And that's hard to do. We've got to be aware. We've got to be aware. Unconditional love. Sincere faith. Encouragers, discipline, unconditional love. I need to work on this one all the time. Proper attitude. Ever heard the phrase, or maybe you've heard people make reference, first thing you need to do when you get up out of bed and your feet hit the floor, say, good morning, Lord. Or do you wake up, roll over, and go, oh, good Lord, it's morning. And the whole day stinks from there on down. Our attitude can make a huge difference. We all know there are certain things in the day that aren't that much fun. But it's like when we wake up in the morning and go, oh, gal, this is going to be one crappy day. It's gotten easier for me to say words like that because the Nakamas kids have grown up. <laughs> Boy, I used to get dirty looks. It's like God made a mistake. What a rotten day, gee, God. What were you thinking today? What were you thinking? How silly is this? But, I, boy, it's an easy trap to fall into. And with that wrong attitude, you know what we have a tendency to develop, and I think you can look in our world today and see it everywhere? We got a whole bunch of victims everywhere. The world owes everybody everything. Why? Because it's just not fair. This isn't right. Look what they got. This isn't that. This, and we just go on and on, and our kids are just sitting there like, wow. Man, stinks being alive. Who's going to take care of me the rest of my life? You know, we can develop such poor attitudes in our kids not even being aware that we're doing it. Having a proper attitude. In Psalms 118, verse 24, this is the day that the Lord has made, right? You heard this, we've sang it, you hear it in church. You grew up in religious churches like I did, denominationally. You heard it all the time. Absolutely true. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That doesn't mean everything in it's fun. Right? Because it's not. But it's a day that he has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in what he is doing in spite of what might be going on in our world and our circumstances. Sincere faith. Encouragement, discipline. Unconditionally love. Have a proper attitude. You know, repeating myself a little bit, but in so many of these things, if we're not modeling it, our kids aren't going to learn it. They just aren't. You know, a lot of people will say things like, Christianity isn't taught, it's caught. Well, I don't know how exactly true that is, but I know with a lot of these things, if we're not doing more than just teaching it, speaking these things, and we're not living it, kids aren't going to. You know, there's 
there was a, not a very scientific survey done amongst youth groups in Christian churches, junior, senior high youth groups. This wasn't a Barna thing, so it wasn't all the scientific research, so it probably wasn't worded properly, all that stuff. But the overall, overall picture that they were trying to get is, with the kids, what is holding you back from living a way that we understand and teach the Bible wants us to live? And the greatest reason by far? Parents. The parents not living like they're telling their kids they're supposed to live. Parents not demonstrating all these things we've been talking about. So what do we learn to do as the kids? This was their answer. We fake it like they do. Again, it's not scientific survey, but I, can't you just see this working in a child's mind? It's supposed to be important. I'm supposed to go to church. I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to do that. I'm supposed to do this. Gee, it'd be nice to, I wonder, do mom and dad care? Are they doing all these things? Are they not being critical of their friends, their neighbors, their pastors? Are they speaking edifying words? Do they have a good attitude? If not, why in the world would we? Having a proper attitude. And the last one I want to mention is teaching. I want to go back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul is writing these words again to Timothy. And Timothy, he's, he's warning him, and he's stated the obvious. Timothy, it's getting worse. Church, it's getting worse. And he writes these words. While evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, continue what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And to me, it's so interesting here, moms, ladies, but all of us. Paul is saying the world is getting worse. There's false teachers. What's that mean? That means in the church. There's false teachers, vain philosophies. There's all kinds of things going on. The world's out here bad, and now the church is beginning to resemble it. He's saying, remember what you learned. And where does he say you learned it from? You learned it as a child. Sitting on grandma and mom's lap, probably, is where it began. We, as parents, can have that kind of impact. We can put a defensive foundation in our kids that can guide them the rest of their lives. And it's going to be hard. There's going to be bumps and curves. We all know that. But if the foundations aren't there, what chance do they have? Lois and Eunice were examples of the powerful influence of a mother and a grandmother. Such a powerful influence. Think about this for a second. Paul chose to write about, write about it in this day and age where women weren't talked about all that much. But he understood the power and the significance of what these two ladies had put into their children, the influence they could have on a young person's life. It's amazing how many testimonies and Probably some of ours would include lines like, boy, if it wasn't for mother, 
I remember mom taking me to church. I've heard so many people say, I had a godly grandmother who came and picked me up and took me to church every Sunday. I have a mother or a grandmother who has been praying for me for many, 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 many years. We hear that part of the testimony so often, the impact that a mother or grandmother has. Paul recognized the life-changing contributions these two women made. And just think, not only in Timothy's life, but his life impacted the planet. Mind-boggling. How God used this kid, evidently raised with one unbelieving parent, in a community where there's temples to false gods, sacrifices made to these, His dad is Greek, an intellect in the city and well-known. But in spite of all this, these two ladies laid a foundation. And hopefully it encourages all of us, especially our mothers, grandmothers, but all of us as parents, people that have an influence, that we can have an influence that will have an eternal impact, not only on our kids, but our communities and way beyond that. The worship team wants to come up. We'll get ready to close with the worship song. But I want to pray over us. Father, one of the most amazing gifts you've given us is family. Which comes with such responsibility. Not just biological family, Father. We know you bring people, young people across our paths that we have opportunities to speak life to to demonstrate Jesus to. Lord, I pray for each and every single one of us here that we would reevaluate and take so seriously the calling that we have to train up and raise up a generation that loves you, serves you. And my phone's talking to me. Or my watch. Lord, help us to understand the impact and the value of the effort that it will require. Lord, I just pray for each one here that we would just receive your word as an encouragement and exhortation. God, that there would be no place for the enemy to come and bring guilt or condemnation. But God, that you and your grace and your mercy and your wisdom and your love for us will give us all that we need to accomplish this task. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to stand and let's close together.